You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone, Harshita here and welcome to another episode of Changing Reality. So welcome one, welcome all. We're so excited to have you here with us for today's episode to listen to yet again another amazing story that will surely serve to inspire all of you. So if this is your first time watching the show, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are in essence changing their own reality. And through this show, we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, top executives, business owners, even artists, musicians, thought leaders, and inspiring individuals from across industries, across the world, and many of them who actually spent some time here on the Penn campus as well. So in order by, in, by hearing these inspiring journeys, the things that they've accomplished, the things that they've done, hopefully we'll see the behind the scenes aspect of it and learn what are the things that they actually did right that enabled them to grow and be able to implement those snippets of wisdom in our own journey so that we too can start figuring out what we love and setting goals that are meaningful to us and also to the world around us. And I wanted to do the show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm passionate about learning how they do that in their own capacity so that these stories can serve to circulate and inspire others to do the same. To show you how powerful I believe in the story, the power of stories is, I actually personally founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that today not only collaborates with our Malaysian Ministry of Education, but actually works with over 28 countries to help provide an alternative education platform for any student out there who wants to change their own reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and projects that help them discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them, and even start their own careers while they're still in school. That again creates meaningful impact for not just themselves, but for those around them. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with over 35,000 students in 970 communities, and have incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by kids aged 8 to 25 years old. And the basis of all of this, how we've been able to achieve all of this is because of stories, because of kind people who've actually come out there and spent their time speaking to us. And similarly, I hope that this show becomes a platform for all of you to do the same so that you too can go out there and have the journeys that you want to experience the things that you are passionate about and hopefully change the world while you're at it. So if you have any questions about the show, if there's anything that you want to talk about, you want to hear about, do let us know in the show chat below and we'll pick up as much of it as we can. So on to today's session, as I mentioned, we have another inspiring story, um, someone that I actually had the fortune of um, hearing about, and she's someone who's worked at some of the top companies out there. So from companies such as Ernst & Young, Hewlett Packard, and she was even a previous director of strategy at Nokia. And today she's the global business development and strategy principal at Hitachi Vantara. So she was also she also has an MBA from Wharton. So someone who, as I mentioned, is also um, a distinguished alumni of our uh, lovely college. And without further ado, let's welcome Miss Nandini onto our screen. Hello. Hi. So nice to see you, Harsha. Thank you so much for joining. We are so excited to have you here with us. Hopefully you're having a good day. Um, how, how has your day been? I think you were wrapping up some work earlier today, right? Yeah, it's Thanksgiving Eve in US and um, 
hopefully I'll be able to go out for dinner after this. Uh, but I'm so glad that we finally got this schedule because, you know, you and I have been chatting on LinkedIn and all and planning to do this for a while. So this is perfect. This is the best. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for having this on the eve of a holiday. And hopefully this gives us all something to be a little thankful for the next uh, for this year, at the very least. And hopefully yeah. we wrap in time for a great dinner as well for you. <laughs> so you're someone who, as I mentioned, works at some of these top companies. Um, you, you are someone who is very focused on the strategy of things. But if I'm not mistaken, you're actually a chartered accountant by profession, right? When you first started. So how did you like, like tell us where your journey began in a sense, because strategy and accounts, I see the connection, but it's still a little bit different. So let's flash back. Did you always know that this was the way your career was going to go through or did you have something else in mind when you began? So um, the short answer is no, absolutely no. <laughs> so the reason I became a chartered accountant is, uh, accountant is because it, it's our family profession. So my dad uh, used to be a chartered accountant. My grandpa uh, became a chartered accountant when the Indian Institute was not even there. So he actually graduated from UK and started his own firm. Um, and my uncles are pretty much my cousins, pretty much every male member in the family is a chartered accountant. <laughs> So my dad uh, and my mom, uh, I have a younger brother also, we were always brought up, you know, uh, in a similar way, saying that you need to have a career, etc. Except in my case, the condition was either you become a CA or we'll marry you off. So I'm like, okay, what do I do? <laughs> Which one seems easier? <laughs> so uh, that's how I became a CA. Uh, initially, uh, when I started, I wanted to be an accountant. I, um, you know, I wanted to be in finance. But what happened was my first job was with Pricewaterhouse in Calcutta. Uh, I was, I'm from Bengal, I'm a Bengali. And um, I, I joined their audit division. And what happened was um, after a couple of years, I realized I do not like this work at all. And the reason I did not like audit is because it was so routine. And don't get me wrong, auditing is a very noble profession. Um, my, grandma, my grandpa was an auditor and he was very proud of it. And I know it's something we have to do and uh, if, if you need the stamp of an auditor on the on the 10k and all for it to be uh, read and valued and evaluated by everyone so that was all fine and dandy but i felt like there was something missing it's not challenging and uh, you know i didn't want to just go and uh, do the same thing over and over every year um, and not realize you know what it, what what am i doing um, how is this adding value to the company so fortunately for me at that time, ERP implementations were taking off uh, in India. And uh, I became part of a group who was uh, trained in Oracle Financials by Pricewaterhouse. And um, once I got trained, I did one implementation in India. And then I had an opportunity to work with an outsourcing firm called Mastec. And that's what uh, brought me to my first international assignment in England. So my first uh, job was in England. Um, and uh, basically what happened was Mastec would kind of loan me out to other companies. My first client was Kellogg's and uh, in Manchester. So I used to live very near the Manchester United Football Club. And um, so I landed in England around uh, 98 at that time. And from then onwards, for the next 10 years or so of my career, I had an opportunity to do multiple Oracle implementations in different countries like Abu Dhabi, Singapore, uh, Canada, et cetera. And while 
again, this was great. I was, you know, in my 20s, I loved uh, traveling all over the world, working in different companies, meeting new people. After a point in time, I started thinking that, okay, Oracle implementations are typically big ticket items. These require a lot of, um, you know, thought process. These require a business case. These require somebody having to sign that check to say, I'm going to spend X amount of dollars and have so many people work on this. So there's this decision making happening, which is happening upstream way above. And I'm kind of working downstream. So how do I go to that upstream level? So that's when uh, that's what got me interested in strategy in the first place. Now, in order to do that, I realized that I'll have to do a pivot in my career. And uh, that was when I did my first MBA, which was from Manchester Business School in UK. Um, I did that and then I got my first break in strategy with Ernst & Young, which brought me to California, which is where I live right now. Um, I joined their strategy practice in uh, 2008. And then over the next um, four or five years or so, I had an opportunity to work in a number of companies in Silicon Valley, like Cisco, Kaiser Permanente, um, you know, as, as my client again. But this was a very different kind of role from the prior work that I had done. Um, eventually, um, I wanted to move into industry uh, because I was getting tired of the traveling. And that's where Wharton came in. Because as I as I uh, was looking for this job ads and everything on LinkedIn, I found that the first thing they asked for is uh, MBA from a top tier uh, university. Manchester Business School is awesome. It was great. But I felt like, you know, how do I get that edge? How do I, you know, get that put in the door in some of these companies, which probably otherwise would pass me by? So that made me uh, start all over again, almost. And I actually applied to only one business school, Wharton, thinking that okay, if I get in, I'm going to do it. If I don't get in, I'm not going to do it. Uh, fortunately for me, I got in and uh, graduated, um, majored in finance uh, in 2013 and uh, started my, uh, I would say, the second phase of my career uh, with Hewlett Packard in 2013. And then, you know, kept moving through companies, learning and working primarily in strategy and landed in Hitachi Vantara about a couple of months ago. So that's why I actually postponed last time when we were supposed to talk because I was in the middle of switching jobs and, you know, trying to get settled in and all that. But, well, that's kind of my story from being an accountant to a strategist. That is absolutely amazing. And spoiler, my mom's also a child, was a chartered accountant. So I, I oh. see that maybe you have some family synergy, but like absolutely amazing the many things that you've done. I, like, especially with like different countries, different companies, like in, in those early stages. How did you how did you become so flexible and adaptable to change in a sense? Because one thing that people have told me about accountants, I don't know all the accountants that I've met are very like amazing and like like can put things together and are creative, but there's a general perception that they're very um like focused on one thing and can see like the, the one thing the whole way through. But you seem like someone who's so good at change and looking at the bigger picture. How did you develop that and like in the early stages when you were moving out and into like a new industry with all of the changes happening at once, it seems? How did you manage? That's a great question. And I think the word you're looking for to describe accountants is staid and boring, which is really how we describe ourselves here. I completely understand you're being nice here. Um, so, you know, for me, it was uh, a couple of things. I mean, I, I kind of realized that I have to go out of India. And uh, I was at a stage where, 
you know, I had just completed my chartered accountancy. I was living with my parents, uh, like most uh, women of my generation. And uh, I felt like my career in India wasn't really going to take off. Um, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, uh, I mean, I was at a stage where this was like late 90s. And even though, you know, there were women in the workforce, there was not this perception that if you're a woman, you can really make it. You have to be a certain way. You have to kind of be listening to people which is fine you cannot really question people and all so i i felt the need that i i'd get stuck in a rut very soon and then uh, once i got this opportunity to go into oracle um, and the the first job from england came along i did not really think that much for me it was uh, you know people say look before you jump i was like i'm gonna jump and then think afterwards <laughs> Um, because the way I evaluated it, and that's where probably, you know, some of the counting um, thinking came in, what am I going to lose if I go, right? If I go, I get to go in a new country, I need to get a fresh start, I can do something which I was really liking at that point, Oracle implementations rather than just auditing and all. And at the worst case, if it doesn't work out, I can always come back. So, so when I did that calculation, mentally of course um that i i felt like it's a calculated risk which i can take now what has happened down the years is whenever i have had to switch careers or think about you know how am i gonna pivot myself i always did this kind of cost benefit analysis if you will and uh, so for example um i mean i was pretty happy at nokia you know it was a great job but then again i felt that i'm kind of falling into a rut it's been three years what i'm doing i'm working with the ceo i'm working with the board of directors all that is fine, but where am I headed? What's my next step there? So that's why I started looking and you know landed here. Um, same thing with um, with every stage. I basically wanted. I always kind of uh, gamed out, if you will, that what is the worst thing that would happen if I take this leap? And I think it's it, it's something. It's almost a muscle you build over time. And I had. I think I have built it almost unconsciously because I had to travel and had to switch careers and do all these things. But it's always about thinking that okay, if I do this six months down the line, what's my either exit strategy out of this, or where do I go if it doesn't work out? So once you start thinking about it in those terms, then it becomes very clear as to that you know this whole fear of the unknown you try to put some contours around it. So it becomes that, okay, maybe I have to switch a job again. Maybe I have to come back home. Like I was thinking if it doesn't work out because you know I'd never lived by myself before I went to England. But the way I think about it is you still get that experience. Um, even if it is a job that doesn't work out that well, even if you have a boss who's not that nice, I feel that you can still learn from that person. You can still learn from that experience get it and move on to something better. So that's pretty much how I have thought about, you know, all the all the things that have happened, good and bad in my life. If it is good, it's good. If it is a bad experience, I can still learn something from it. Even if it is learning something like what not to do or how not to behave with someone, that's still an experience and a lesson you can take with yourself. Very, very well said. And I was actually watching one of, I think, your prior interviews or video that you did, which shared about how you, you think about these calculators. And you also mentioned something else when planning, I think, the strategy of your own life, which is to take a non-linear approach in a way. How, how do you think you, you use that like, or like in the context of your own life and planning out your own career or something? Because right now, I think for many of us, it's like we don't even know what's the first step in a way or 
how do you take that whole non-linear path in a way? So I think uh, when I said that, what I meant was, I mean, ideally we'd like our career graphs to go like this, right? Hockey stick growth and, you know, go all the way out with no ups and downs, but that's not how life works. Um, I mean, that's something which I guess we all learn once we become an adult and, you know, get, get out into the world that not everybody is going to be helping you or trying to, um, you know, help you get your way and all that. What I meant by non-linear is, you know, just be aware that there's going to be these ups and downs and be prepared for it. Um, and if that means that sometimes you have to take a step back in order to get ahead. And one example was when I got into Wharton, I was in Ernst and Young at that time. And what happened was um, the, I had applied uh, in Wharton and I, I had also applied to a couple of other jobs. Now I got into Wharton and the, I was in the final stages of interview in a couple of other places and I purposely pulled back from that. The reason for that is, um, so uh, we had this one week um, onboarding that happens in Wharton. And I remember one of the alumni, I can't remember his name. He said that, um, you know, you'll have to kind of cut back on certain areas of your life if you want to be uh, doing this MBA thing. And I knew that, you know, this is going to require a lot of hard work and a lot of studying. I mean, we got this high stack of books coming in at the start of the semester. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> but anyways, um, so there what I thought was, okay, if I switch a job now and start a new job while I'm starting this MBA, which is extremely challenging, I don't think I would be able to handle both at the same time. So again, I thought about, okay, what is my end game? What do I want to do? Ultimately, I want to do the MBA successfully, which is a two-year, very finite kind of timeline. And then I want to move into the industry, the tech strategy role, which is kind of where I want to be. So in these two years, if uh, if I want to step back, how do I do it? So I uh, actually entered into an arrangement with Ernst & Young where uh, I took a pay cut. And in exchange of that, I was I would be allowed to attend uh, classes every other week the way they do the exact MBA. Because I didn't want to miss my classes and I wanted to prioritize Wharton over my job at, for those two particular years. So that was kind of a, you know, taking a retreat in order to get ahead kind of non-linear approach that I took. Very, very good example. I think it's a nice segue to talking about how, so how was it for you kind of like juggling both at the same time? You still had to focus on the career and at the same time you were going to these classes, learning something new, as you mentioned, with tall stacks of books, which I think many Penn students can definitely think of like, like picture the moment. So how did you go about managing both of this? And how do you feel like your your view of the of the industry that you wanted to approach with changed after the having this MBA experience with Penn? So the experience was extremely draining in the sense that, you know, uh, two years just go by like that. And that's what they told us uh, on day one of onboarding. Uh, and training in the sense in a good way, it's exhausting. The, so, you know, you're up till 10 p.m., sometimes 11, 12 working. And there are loads of super talented, crazy people around around you. I mean, I did not realize how much I lack in academics till I got into Wharton because I used to, uh, you know, like come first in school and all. I was always used to being the topper in my class. I got into Wharton and I'm like, wow, I hope I don't get an LT. 
Um, but but that kind of makes you humble. That makes you realize that there are so many super talented people, and you know, who are working with you. And so it was an all-round uh, exhausting but learning experience. So we would spend days on doing homework. I mean, we we have a WhatsApp group now for our Wemba um, class 37, where we still joke about all these things about who used to do homework and who used to you know not do it and all that. So I met some amazing friends and uh, learned a lot. And I think what Morton teaches you or uh, very well is how to think differently. And that is the most valuable part of an education. I mean, surely the degree is very important. Uh, you know, it instantly opens door. The network is super. Um, but then this whole way of, you know, taking a different approach, different view, questioning things, questioning your reality, if, uh, you know, so to speak, that is the kind of lens which an Ivy League education would put on you so that you're not taking, um, you're not just seeing what, you, uh, you're not just seeing everything in black and white and things like that. You're trying to see the nuances. You're trying to understand what's going on behind behind the scenes and trying to understand that. So I think that that part was very valuable. Okay, that's very nice to know. So, and I think many of us, when we, especially at Penn, it, at times it feels like, oh my God, this is very different, at least for me, than well, anything that I've done before. And it, it's like a complete, um, like, like overhaul of the way that I would think of things. Exactly. Yep, nice yep. to know that it pays off in a way. In your, in your next kind of like phase of your career, you went into strategy. I think you started at Hewlett Packard mm -hmm. after your MBA at Wharton. How do you feel that ability to, to see things differently beyond the black and white translated into your work and the things that you did? Maybe you could share with us some of the stories that were only possible because of that ability to think differently. Sure. So uh, my first job uh, in Hewlett Packard was when Meg Whitman was still the CEO. And uh, this is a story which I also talk about in uh, my job interviews, um, because that was literally the first strategy project that I did. Um, so what used to happen was, uh, and this was when Hewlett Packard was still one company. So the, um, I was working for the PC division and, uh, and Meg Whitman used to go for these listening tours with customers. And she was getting a lot of feedback from customers that, uh, you know, they're not getting their laptops and all delivered on time. And these are like big enterprises. Uh, who order bulk uh, PCs and stuff. So she came back and related it and it um, well got assigned to yours truly somehow uh, okay. <laughs> that, okay, figure out what's going on. That And that's literally what they tell you in strategy. So, uh, you know, for those of you who want to get into strategy, that's where the uh, turning the abstract into concrete comes into it. So why is Meg hearing from customers that they're not getting their laptops and PCs on time? What's going on here? So I started thinking and digging around a little bit with initial interviews with stakeholders and found out that there are multiple things going on. Firstly, uh, HP obviously didn't uh, build their own laptops, they get assembled. So, and the way they get assembled is uh, we put, we get an order, we get sales orders for laptops, we break it down into procurement, into different parts which have to be shipped out. Those parts have, uh, the, those procurement orders goes, go to suppliers those suppliers, which are all over the globe, they would send those parts in and they get assembled in Foxconn or some other factory in China and get shipped up. Turns out there were inventory issues because we were piling up some parts, not piling up others. There were sales sort of forecasting issues because salespeople were kind of under forecasting sales so that they can meet their targets. And uh, 
Foxconn, which also works with companies like Apple and all, were not giving us all the capacity that we need because they would get some parts and not others. And you cannot assemble a laptop without a keyboard or without a battery. You have to have everything. So it was an all-around mess that was going on. So just going through that and, you know, I kind of related it, simplified it in two, three minutes. But this was a six, seven-month initiative that I had to undertake, talking to people, going through the data, trying to understand and kind of it's like putting a puzzle together what's going on it's like you know you have different clues everywhere and you try to put it together to find out what's the real picture so so, so that and i think the wharton education helped a lot and i actually used something i learned in wharton uh, so this was a statistical model that i built which took in inputs like what is our inventory level how much orders are we expecting next week etc how much inventory do we have to maintain and all that and predicted what should be the next procurement order for parts. And what that helped do is it helped take out the swings and the ups and downs from the inventory and try to flatten it out. So, so I was very happy with that because you know it helped me kind of you know use whatever I had learned in Wharton for the first time and also uh, kind of do the strategy on on my own um, with very little guidance. And uh, I mean it was scary now that I think about it, but. <laughs> You know, what's I'm still hearing the story in a way and, and just like thinking of just the scale of the issue and how you went about addressing it is absolutely brilliant in a way. And I think that's something that, that, that again, I don't think I can understand, like anyone can really grasp the whole story unless you were there and like, like seeing that and all. When, when you're working on these projects and sometimes they're very huge, I'm sure you have a brilliant team with you. But how do you, I mean, like strategy is something that I feel is not easy. You really have to, as you said, like figure out, get to the root of it, see what's actually happening. And then you have to implement something that would affect almost everyone who's involved in that problem. Yeah. Don't, don't you ever get insecure or afraid that whatever you're doing may not like be the actual problem or that the solution is not big enough? How do you handle like any doubts or insecurities you have when you do it dealing with projects of this size? Because you seem absolutely amazing at your job. So I just want to know, like, do our insecurities ever go away with experience or is it something that you just manage? You know? So I think you kind of hit the nail there. I mean, part of the insecurity is not knowing um what's coming down the road and with experience you kind of learn to handle that because you know at the end of the day most companies have a few core strategic problems um whether it's amazon or a new startup there are a few things all of them are trying to do how to get growth bottom line growth top line growth if you're a new startup you're trying to grow your user if you're amazon you're trying to grow your use uh, your subscribers and users or what have you you're also trying to turn in a profit for a new startup that may not may or may not be uh, you know you may or may not be profitable initially you can still get away with it but as you scale how do you keep your costs in check so if you think about what are the strategic problems a business would face i would say at its core they're kind of similar how do we enter new markets how do we retain our customers how do we uh, reduce our costs how do we improve our bottom line uh, how do what are our competitors doing how do we get ahead um, how do we increase our market share? So, and so once you and uh, you know kind of understand that the the path to the answers get easier. It's never straightforward because uh, you know every company will have its own set of challenges which are beyond the overall macro challenges that are happening in the overall environment. And every company has its um, intricacies, whether it's the politics, you know, the lack of reliable data. These are some of the things 
which are surprisingly all over the place. So over time, you kind of learn to balance that. So for example, the one thing which I've learned is whenever I get uh, any data, I take it with a grain of salt. I mean, just today we were having a meeting about lost opportunities uh, from our CRM Salesforce system. And uh, as I was explaining some of the interesting things that um, I found to my boss, the first thing I told him was that, okay, you have, I want to predicate everything I'm saying by say, stating that the data may or may not be 100% accurate. We know that already. But let's assume that the data is accurate. Then we are seeing some very definite trends that we need to investigate. Now, this is not something which I would have said at my first job because I would have thought that, okay, I got data, I got the answer. I'm going to go jump all over the place and tell everybody how to do it. So the thing is, and I have burned myself a little bit like that because in those cases, when I went jumping with the data that, okay, I found 40% of the cases we are losing because of this, my boss would typically be the SVP or VP would turn around to me and say that, okay, and how do you know this is accurate? Have you, have you talked to any of those people? Have you, because it all says, uh, you know, we lost and we lost for X reason. You're just taking it at face value. So, and then I would be like, oh no, what have I done? Uh, so, but, but, but that's exactly what I'm saying. It comes with experience that you learn that whatever data you're saying, whatever is going on, there's always a gray side, there's always a nuance and you try and understand that nuance over time, which makes you a better strategist, I think. So you come to, you know, take a step back. If you're saying something, you always predicate it with the things, things like this may not be correct, but if it is correct, we need to look into it. And I think that that opens up people's mind a lot more that you know kind of enables them to empathize with you to relate to you to un to listen to you and kind of work with you on 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 everything but you know you've got to learn it the hard way i mean i hope somebody listens to this and learn that but don't make the mistakes i made when i was a young strategist no no that's actually a very that's actually a very powerful story and i think i definitely see like where you're coming from with this but honestly i feel like at times like like i go to the extremes of seeing oh this is the data this is what the data says this is what, mm -hmm. how we need to fix it or can we really trust this data how do we know what like like if it's right and all of that and i think on one side data is very important because it shows the output the reflection what what like like at many times even what clients are thinking what people are thinking and all of that yeah. but at the same time sometimes it's like even the way that you can interpret the same set of data could have like several different reasons that lead up to it there could be many causes so there's so many variables that is involved and as you said, sometimes what, what you get may not be exactly accurate as when you go and speak to individual people on the floor. How do you balance that, the, the human aspect of it and the, and the everyday part of like, like seeing the, the everyone doing their job, seeing the, the individual links, and then seeing this over viewing data, which shows the product and things like that. How do you, you balance looking at both of it at the same time? Yeah, and um, that's a great point. Um, and, you know, one thing which I would say is data without context has no meaning. You know, every data you have to look at in the context. So today, uh, for example, if I tell you that, okay, we made $2 billion in revenue. Okay, so what? Compared to what? Where does that put you in the whole scheme of things? And uh, again, that's something you learn over time that if you just throw a number out, and this is something which I tell my team when I'm working with them that if you just put a graph in front of me and give it to me, I'm going to take a look at it and say that, okay, so what? Where's the context behind this number? So that, that's the first step. 
And the way you get the context is through human intelligence. So it's not just data. That's it's the story, the color behind it, which you get from uh, from that. So again, coming back to this whole, uh, you know, the lost opportunity discussion that I was having today. So what what we are planning to do and what we will do is talk to the salespeople, talk to the account managers where these losses have happened and try to understand what actually went on. Because, again, this is very practical human behavior. Typically in a company, um, you know, we have these win loss reports. Um, but if you're losing something, most of the time you're either going to put in a reason, you know, you're filling out something in Salesforce, you want to get rid of it and move on to your next project. You'll put in a reason, whatever the default is, put in some dollar value and then walk away. So you're, you're kind of not getting the real story behind it. So then once you have these data points, you can kind of zero down knowing that, okay, maybe it's not entirely 100% accurate and then go talk to the account managers who held these deals. Who have these accounts, and they might be able to tell you, even if it is anecdotal and unstructured data, as to what actually went on. And then you piece it together and gives you the whole story. So, again, going back to this work which I did in Hewlett Packard, if you just look at it, okay, customers are complaining, why? It's only when I started digging through it and looked into the data, spoke to like 10, 15 people that the story came together. So that's kind of the, you know, the balance that you were talking about between the hardcore data, the quant part, and then the qualitative part, which is very important that you bring them two together to, to kind of finally get to the bottom of everything. All right. Very well explained. And you have an absolutely brilliant way of approaching this. It's like social intelligence meets critical thinking meets so many other things. How do you even go about today as someone who leads teams um, in your previous role as well? You had a director of strategy at a very huge company today as well in your new role. How do you instill this way of approaching things into the people in your teams and into the people around you? Because I, I don't think any everyone will be as well-versed and as experienced as you are at seeing this. So, and it's a very, and it's something that requires both, as you said, the quantitative and the qualitative brain to kind of work together. So how do you help foster that among your team? And how can people who may not have someone as kind as you foster that in themselves in a way? So two-parter to the question. Sure. Um, so I think that the fostering starts by with yourself, right? So if I'm given a problem, I start thinking about, okay, how do I want to approach it? what's my end game what do i want to put out as my final deliverable and again you know there's no there's more art to it than science i mean all of us can make decks use powerpoint and microsoft excel and things like that so those skills are required absolutely but then what is required is like you mentioned critical thinking and approaching a problem because um, especially if you're in strategy, things always start with your boss getting a call from the CEO as to why something is not working and then coming and dumping it on you. That's pretty much the, you know, um, how it all starts. Um, so for example, if I might give another one from uh, my previous job in Nokia, we used to have this market reports come out and, uh, you know, which would tell us where our market share is and all that. And then we would have to do the analysis as to where we are even so nokia used to be uh, pretty much at the top even though they did not have a lot of market share so once so the first year that i worked uh, worked on that with my boss um we we started with an approach that okay 
We are going to start at the overall market where we have about 10, 9% market share, understand who our competitors are, and then start drilling down, drilling down to see which segments we are doing well, which segments we are not doing well. So having that structured approach, and that is again something which comes with time helps. So for me, what I've started doing over, over the years is whenever I'm given a problem or whenever I'm working on a project, I start by thinking about my deliverable. What am I going to deliver at the end of the two weeks or three weeks or whatever time am I going to spend on it? What does that look like? And, you know, I may not know every slide that I'm going to make. I may not know all the things that I'm going to do, but I would have uh, an approximate idea of what it, it is going to look like. Now, once I have that, then I start working backwards that, okay, if I want to, for example, come up with all the understand all the segments where we are doing well or not doing well, what are the data that I need? What do I need to look for? Who do I need to talk to? How do I put more color on it? So once you start doing that, then it becomes a project plan. Then you start understanding that, okay, I have to go through four research reports. I have to talk to 10 stakeholders. How do I plan out my time over the next six to eight weeks? That becomes your project plan. And then you can take that to your boss, maybe a five, six slide text saying that, okay, this is my approximate deliverable. This is how I'm approaching it. This is my project plan. What do you think? And that gives you very good feedback because that helps him or her also anchor their belief, or, you know, anchor their thoughts and say that, okay, I have something in front of me. He can tell me that, okay, I don't think this would take you that long. I don't think you need to read that research report. Somebody has already read it, go talk to him. So you get very concrete, uh, actionable feedback. And they also get the confidence that, okay, this person, even if uh, she's new or he's new, they can still go ahead and do this because what you have done is you have taken that abstract question which your boss got tossed at and made it into a project plan which he can now see that you know he's going to have something in six weeks or eight weeks which he can then take back to the ceo and say that okay see it's not just the 10 percent in the overall market share you should be looking at these other segments where we do will these other segments where we are way behind and you know he get the he gets the whole picture so i think having that structured thinking that helps Okay, and I really like how you said you start at the deliverables. You see that end goal in a way, and you work backwards from there. I feel like many. I feel like that's a very good way to contextualize the framework of like approaching these problems as well. There's also, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but there seems to be a huge human aspect to it. And I feel like many times coming up with the plan is amazing, but at times maybe the human aspect will interfere with the plan. So you may meet people who may not be so forthcoming with information, or there may be people who get a little bit defensive and all of that. How do you manage people like this and, and still meet your targets, still meet your deadlines in a way? Yeah, and you know, the one thing about strategy is if you're not getting into trouble, you're probably not being a good strategist. Because strategy <laughs> means questioning the status quo, right? I wouldn't be having a job, or uh, you know, any other strategist wouldn't be having a job if everything was going very well in the company. So then there's nothing to strategize about. So, and uh, what I mean by that is, you know, if typically, unless you're just doing like a research paper or, you know, writing a white paper, which is also something we do occasionally, every strategy project should end with an action plan on what to change and what to keep. 
Um, and that inevitably leads to conflicts because somebody you're going to um, upset somebody's apple cart in whatever way, shape or form, you know, and somebody's going to be unhappy. So the way to manage this is to gradually get people on board with it. So you don't go with the final product. You, for example, if you, you want to get your boss on board with your recommendations, right? So how do you get him or her on board? You go with the approach. You start at the very first step, which is this is what I think the end result would be. This is how I'm approaching it. These are the people I'm talking to. What do you think? So you're already getting a buy-in there. Now, as you're talking to the people, your stakeholders, as we call them, which who can be anybody, and typically the good thing about strategy is you end up working with a lot of senior people um, in very close quarters. And that, that was actually one of the reasons why I went into strategy, because it's a very high profile role. And, you know, you, like I said, you can get into a lot of trouble, but you get trouble with higher ups. So, you know, what's wrong with that? But as you're talking to these people, you, the way you can bring them again on board is aligning on some basic principles that, okay, we are not on opposite sides. Both of us want to grow the company. Both of us know that this problem exists. And this is how I think we should approach it. What do you think? So that immediately, you know, turns the conversation from a conflict slash confrontation into more on alignment. So it's more of a collaboration. That's what you want because they have insights which I don't have. I mean, um, as a strategist, I don't know the ins and outs of everything. I may know a little bit of GTM, go to market. I may know a little bit of what's going on in the product, but they know these people who own these things or who are the business unit heads or the EVPs and the SVPs, they know what's going on. So you need to tap into their intelligence and they must be willing to share that with you. And the only way they would be willing to share that with you is if your goals are aligning with theirs. So that's where the whole human interaction or the human understanding of EQ, if you will, comes into play. So it's not just a matter of, you know, putting in some data in front of them, putting a slide in front of them and saying that, okay, what do you agree with this or not? But it's bringing together the collaboration, giving, understanding their point of view going with an approach like okay if we do this what do you think instead of saying that i think you should do this and ask them what do you think and you know they, they they would have a viewpoint they might tell you that okay i've done that before and failed it has not worked so then ask them why has it not worked and what can we do differently this time so you so that way it becomes more collaborative and it you get the buy-in so you're getting the buy-in every step of the way so that when, when we come to the final approach or the final session or the final deliverable, if you will, there's no surprises. Everybody knows where they stand. And, you know, again, it sounds easy, but this takes like months and months of work and meeting and, you know, having to pull your hair out sometimes. Um, but I mean, I don't think there's really any other way of doing it. And I'll give um, an example, um, which is outside of strategy. Um, so in US, President Biden um, and the US Congress, they passed this huge infrastructure bill, uh, which is a big deal. And, uh, you know, the negotiations have been going on for months and months. And as I was watching it on news every day, it kind of felt similar to what I do at work every day. I mean, obviously, I don't do infrastructure bills, but it's a matter of, again, bringing together all these diverse aspects of even within the Democratic Party, you know, you have the progressives, you have the moderates, you have the Senate, you have the House. And so it's all about, you know, everybody has their interests. Everybody wants to do something. How do you bring it together and then sign the bill, which is like agreeing on a path forward? So it's similar. It's painstaking. It's painful, but ultimately, hopefully,
Hopefully it works. Okay. I love that the way that you phrased that and the way that you brought that up and hopefully one day we'll have you um maybe you'll be leading our uh, leading the government one day and you <laughs> all of this strategy information and putting that into place so who knows oh, i think I, that would be a disaster <laughs> we seem to be doing a good job in the corporate world but all right um very very nice in your own career in a sense many times there are many moving elements and things like that mm -hmm. and you went from someone who was in a completely different field learned something new went out there into this field and today i think it's absolutely amazing and very incredibly successful what you do what do you think it's about you or what, what do you think is a character or something about you that has enabled you to grow so fast in this so um first i don't think i'm that successful and i'm not being modest i mean you know honestly when you said that it's going to be a 45 minute um, webcast slash interview um, the first thing i i told my mom that Who's going to listen to me for 45 minutes? I can understand somebody listening to Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Why would they want to listen to me for 45 minutes? Which tells you, you know, how I really think about myself. Um, but um, I think being humble, being willing to learn and being open to new experiences, even when it is scary, uh, that that's something which has helped me. And, uh, and it, it hasn't been a smooth ride at all. Uh, there have been many ups and downs. Uh, for me personally, on my personal level, professionally also, um, I've moved around, switched jobs and been through some personal stuff also. But at the end of the day, I mean, you have to be true to who you are. Um, so one thing which I always try to do is I don't stagnate, whether it's a relationship, professional, personal. If I feel I'm stagnating, I'll walk away from it because, uh, you know, life is too short. If something is not working, walk away from it good uh, go for something better so whether it's a new job whatever new person etc etc that that always happens and i always have this core group of people around me for me it's been my parents my brother uh, my dad passed away a couple of years ago so now it's mostly my mom and my brother a few friends so so i have this core group of uh strength around me so to speak and uh, you know you have your family you have your friends and uh, being open to new experiences and being true to yourself um, and taking taking things as they come. Okay. I know it sounds a little pageanty, but you know it it is what it is. That's a good one. Like like I I don't think it sounds pageanty. I think it sounds very very real. And one and like with so many things like you've worked at many of these top companies and all of that. And I'm sure it's not easy, like like being at such a high level and still moving, still growing. Do you plan like 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 the end result of where you want to go at each level, or do you just get into the action and see where it takes you? And how do you go about looking at your own career journey? So whenever I have switched jobs, I have tried to you know move up, and for me, luckily that has worked out. So if I'm going to switch. Um, from one career, a couple of times I had to make a lateral move. So for example, when I uh, finished my MBA and uh, went from Ernst and Young, Young to Hewlett Packard, I had moved as a manager. I was a manager in um, Ernst and Young and basically at HP, they said, you don't have industry experience, um, which 
I mean, it may or may not be fair, but I accepted it. Um, but then once you get into it, it, it's always a matter of saying that, okay, if I'm going to switch a job, because it requires a lot of effort to get a new job, you know, and you have to do it while working at your old job and having a social life and all. So think about, you know, wh why you're doing it. it. It's obviously the salary and all the money part is important, but it needs to be something a little bit beyond that also. So it's a step up. It's a more it's more span of control. It's different kind of role, uh, maybe even if it is a lateral move. Uh, because that all builds your career, builds your experience. So even if your next job is not the perfect one, whatever, if you're doing it right, the one after that might give give you an even better, uh, you know, step ahead or step up, if you will. So, so that's how kind of, I also think about the company I'm going into. Um, so um, I'm sure there are, you know, good companies like Amazon and Google and all, but for me, it's always a matter of, I absolutely do want to work in Google, but I, should I go and work at a level which is two levels below where I am just because it's Google or AWS? Um, and the answer to that is no. So, so those are some of the things I consider which are personal to me and somebody else, you know, if you're at a different stage of your career, you might think about it a little bit differently, of course. Okay, again, very well said. And I think, um, I know you said you didn't feel like you have anything to talk about for 45 minutes, but I have had so much fun. I know. I, I feel so sad now. I wish I really wish we had more time because I feel like there's still so many things I, I, I want to ask you at the very least. But like as we wind down our discussion, you know, looking back at your career, looking back at all the many things that you do, the way that you think about things, I feel like you have a very unique perspective of all of this that, that I feel for as someone who 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 runs my own business, who's trying to learn all these things, I think just listening to you is very helpful. Yeah. So for all of the people out there right now who are trying to think, look at things differently, maybe they want to move into a career where they have to look at things differently, or even looking at their own life, making a change. You made so many changes in where you live, the work that you do. How do we even begin to process change? How do we even begin to take that first step in a way? Where do we start with switching the way we think? That's a great question. And firstly, let me tell you how much I admire the fact that you have your own business. I mean, I, I was looking at your profile and I saw your TED Talks and all, and uh, I was thinking, I mean, I wasn't like that when I was your age. I wish I was. <laughs> you're, you're so accomplished, Hasha. no question about that. But that aside, I think the whole thing about change is start by asking yourself, why do you want to change something, right? Because that's something is not right. That's why you're changing, right? Whether it's like I said, if it's a job, if you want to move, move to a different country. For me, my first change was I figured out I'm not going to make it in India, which is unfortunate because I'm from India. It's my country, but just the whole situation that was there at work, the whole misogyny and everything, I felt like, you know, no matter how hard I try, I'm probably not going to make it. Um, so, so there's always a trigger. So what's your trigger for change? Now, once you understand that, then from there, start thinking about, okay, if this is not working, what would work for me? So think about, again, the end game. What do you want to do? I mean, do you want to go to a different country, to a different role, to a different job? So once you have that figured out that I want to go from this to that, the rest is a process. How do you get there? Step one, step two, step three. So it's it's like that. And I know it's it, change is so scary. I mean, when I first started living in UK, 
my biggest problem was I didn't know how to cook. I mean, I don't know how to cook even today, but that time I was so bad. I called up my mom and asked her how to make coffee. And, you know, she laughed at me over phone. <laughs> but, uh, and, and, you know, just going somewhere and starting your life all over again, that, that can be very scary. But to me, in spite of all of it, there was this feeling that, okay, I have to do it because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make it in my home country. I'm, I have to take a chance. So I'm going to take a chance and see how it goes. So I think if you have that mindset, what is causing, what, what is driving the change and what you want the final state to be or what you want the change to be, then map out your steps from there and maybe do that calculation. What happens if it doesn't work out? What's your plan B? How do you exit out of it? And then it becomes, so then the whole abstract thing that is there, oh, I'm going to change, that becomes manageable. So, you know, it's like breaking it down into pieces and you overcome that fear of the uncertain that is there. And it, it becomes almost, you know, mundane that I'm going to do this. I'm going to take step one, step two, step three. If it is a new job, I'm going to polish up my resume, get some interview coaching, start applying and go from there. Okay. I, I really love the way you put that. I really love how it seems even in, in your career and in life, you have this talent for taking the abstract and turning it into something that sounds manageable, something that sounds like uh, that is like can be processed by our feeble human brains who probably are not as uh, as accomplished as uh, in like in the areas that you are and i think that that's a very good way to look at everything and i'm just looking at now the tasks that i have on my mind and all of the things that i've been putting off because it seems so big and abstract and i'm thinking okay how do i how do i start processing that how do i use this framework you've brought in so thank you very much my and final you. question before i very sadly end this interview if you could go back to you in the past, maybe even before you became an accountant, before you even thought that this would be your journey, what would you tell yourself in a way? And in in view of that, what would you tell everyone else who's probably starting out in their journeys at that as well? That's a tough one. Um, I mean, I, I probably would tell myself not to be afraid, you know, because I, um, because I think the fear is the fear of the unknown, the uncertain, that is the biggest thing. And even today, I mean, it's not like I'm completely fearless and all. I'm pretty much, you know, scared of everything that is there, but you get used to it over time because you know what you can control and what you cannot control. So, and I think when you're younger and especially when you don't have that much of experience in the world and, um, if you're like me, you're pretty much sheltered by your parents all your life who have taken care of everything. I mean, when I first started my job, my dad would make sure I have money in my purse. That's how sheltered and spoiled I was. And uh, so when you're starting from somewhere like that, it's very easy to be afraid when something doesn't work or, you know, something goes wrong or there's a tragedy or something unexpected or unfortunate happens. But I think we are a lot more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. There's this human spirit which always comes through, which survives through everything. Um, so try not to be afraid. And I know it. I know it sounds so preachy and so you know, out of touch in certain ways. But I think half the time that we hold ourselves back is because we are afraid of something. Maybe it's a change. Maybe it's something we don't know what's going to happen. So once you start processing that fear. Um, I think it becomes more manageable. Again, it's not going to go away. It's a matter of managing it, coping with it, and working through it. 
that's how you get through it. So I, I tell myself and anybody who's starting out, you know, maybe just out of college and or you know, starting a new job. Don't be afraid. I mean, what's going to happen will will happen. So learn, so try to process that fear, learn from the experiences and, you know, go with the flow, go with it and see see what becomes. It might turn out to be even better than what you expected. I mean, when I first left my home, I never thought that I would be living by myself in US or, you know, somewhere else. I would be traveling all over the world. I could not even imagine those things. For me, just going to England was, yay, I've done it. But, you know, life happens and sometimes things work out. Absolutely brilliant. You are someone who is very wise, very practical, and I think very human. And, and, like, and no, I'm serious. Like, I, I feel like everything that you've said is very relevant to us and like what we feel. So thank you so much for, for actually agreeing to do this interview and for taking your time out to share this with us. Because especially with the new year coming, with everyone setting things that they want to do, I feel like it's very important to hear this and find a way that we can break down the fear that we have to move forward. So thank you so much. And I really hope you had as much fun as we have listening to you. And um, thank you for your story. Awesome. Thank you, Harsha, for having me. And I wish you all the best. I hope someday I can look back and say, uh, you know, when I'm seeing your name in billboards and all, you know, Harsha interviewed me. I was one of her first interviewees. You may not believe it, so I hope you get to be that successful. <laughs> you are too kind that I'm speechless of how to reply to that, but really thank you, and I, I do really appreciate it. And like it, it's like see speechless really. Thank you so much. And to our audience today, thank you guys for listening in today. This has been Nandini. She is an absolute amazing person to talk to. And um, thank you guys for watching another episode of Changing Reality. We're on Thursdays at 10 p.m. Eastern time. So until next week, bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.